0: Good morning. Let us stand together, hear from God's Word. Psalm 98 calls us to worship. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The Lord is faithful to his people. Let us be faithful in proclaiming his salvation to the nations. And let us do that now as we rejoice together. So, you can be seated. Well, welcome back to church, brothers and sisters. It's good to be here. Yes. Praise God. Well, I have missed you. And I was considering 1 uh, Thessalonians when Paul writes to uh, that church there that he desired to be with them. He, had, uh, he was affectionately desirous to be with them and to not only share in their partnership in the gospel, but to share of themselves, to share their lives together. And I've felt that much this past month as I've been away from you all. So I'm glad to see you here. If you're visiting with us, you are welcome here as well. And we're thankful for you. We've been praying for you. We'll continue to pray for you as you engage in worship with us today. If you have any questions, please let us know how we can serve you. You can email the church info at dscabq.com. Or you can come down front after the service. There'll be a pastor or two down here. We'd love to meet you and talk to you. And there's also a bunch of people around you that would love to meet you and talk to you um, at, a, at a distance with, with mask on. But they would still love to meet you. You're surrounded by Christians. So if you have any questions about Jesus or the Bible, there's plenty of people to ask. So you can pick, pick your adventure there of how you uh, engage with the body through email or come down front or just turn and... Greet somebody next to you. We'd love to serve you in any way we can. Well, as I read from Psalm 98 earlier, all of creation is called upon to make a joyful noise before God, for our Savior and Creator has come to restore His creation. Our sin wrecked creation, and Christ's coming was the beginning of the restoration. Christ brings joy to the world by bringing light where there is darkness, by bringing growth where there is decay, by bringing blessing where there is curse. And we, uh, along with all creation, want to respond in praise, and particularly in this season of Advent, we respond in praise uh, for the person and work of Jesus. It's because of Christ and his redeeming, restoring work that we can even go now to the Father boldly before his throne and ask for his help. So let's pray together. God of love, open the hearts and minds of many this Christmas time to the good and saving news of Jesus Christ, that all whose lives are insecure or empty, aimless or without foundation, may they find in the one born at Bethlehem all that they need today and much more besides. We ask that for this whole gathering for this body, that you would build us up for your namesake. Amen. Let us stand and continue to consider our Savior come.
1: Who is this man come to die? This man
2: is Jesus Christ,
1: Rock of Ages, glad for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Let the Tide which flow, be of sin, the double cure, save from wrath and myth. Breath when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee
2: on thy
1: judgment
2: throne.
0: That's your hope. Say amen. amen. You can be seated.
3: Would you bow with me? Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, you indeed are our rock of salvation. We enter into that rock and we are safe safe from ourselves, safe from the world, safe from Satan, safe from sin and destruction, and most importantly, Lord, safe from your wrath. We thank you for grace, the double cure, saved from wrath and making us pure. Lord, as we wait for our final redemption with great hope, we pray you'd make us awaiting people that wait well. Your people have always been awaiting people. From Israel in slavery, in the book of Exodus, awaiting your redemption, to the days of awaiting a king that later came in David, or in the days of the great prophets as they elevated the expectations and And the hope and the anticipation swelled as they awaited the Savior. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of standing on this side of your first coming. We don't wait like those who came before. We don't wait like Simeon and Anna in the temple who longed to see with their own eyes the flesh of the Lord Jesus. You have come. You are our rock. You've died, you're raised, you're risen on high and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. You rule over all. And yet we're still awaiting people, waiting for more, waiting for your return. And we think of 1 Peter 1, which encourages us to set our hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed at your coming. Set our hope fully on that. Oh, Lord, we're so prone to set our hope significantly on so many other things. Keep us from setting our hope on a vaccine. Keep us from setting our hope on an election or the next president or the same president. Lord, keep us from setting our hope on a decent economy or our job in 2021, our plans in the year 2021, Lord, may we not set our hope even on the very best of things, our marriages, our kids. May we set our hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed, glorious grace, when Jesus comes again. May that be enough for us, Lord. May that get us through. Lord, may we be a happy, hopeful, and enduring people by your grace, for your glory, and for our good. Amen.
0: Let us stand and continue our longing, our hoping together.
2: Oh, come, oh, come, amen.
3: Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you that you have come. We thank you that you are coming again. We pray your coming would be soon. And in the meantime, we pray you'd come to us by your spirit, in your word, and you would speak afresh. Teach us. Show us your glory. And may we be changed from one degree of glory to another as we behold your glory today in christ's name amen you could be seated well today we begin a new series we'll take a break from our study of nehemiah and come back to that sometime in january in december and for some of january we'll take some time to ponder why jesus came why he came Let me take a few minutes now to explain the series we'll be in for a a bit here. Christmas is about Jesus' coming. We call it the incarnation. God comes in the flesh. And some parts of the Bible tell us, well, that Jesus came. Or tell us how Jesus came. They record the events surrounding his birth. We think of the star and the visit of the magi or the shepherds or even the angels. We think of the manger scene. And these are far from unimportant. These events are magnificent and they often occupy our time and consideration in the month of December. But they're not alone there are also parts of the Bible that explain to us why Jesus came, and often they're stated quite explicitly. And that really is the crux of the issue, isn't it? Why he came, not just that he came, or how he came, or the events, the events surrounding his coming, but why he came and why it matters. It's possible at Christmas time to merely celebrate the season or to merely celebrate a sentiment merriness joy peace family gift giving but that's not enough and better but still not enough would be to concentrate to think on to get excited and celebrate Jesus and his coming but Christians are to celebrate not least at christmas all that Jesus is, all that he says, all that he represents, all that he holds forth and promises. We cannot have a truncated Christ. We cannot buffet what we like about him. We can't, well, he can't be divided. He won't be divided. He's a whole, unlike any of us. We are Well, we're whole. I was talking to my family recently about this, about the simplicity of God's attributes. Simplicity. It doesn't mean he's simple, it means he's a whole. Everything he does, he does all in. And we're not like that. Our minds are over here, our bodies are here, we're half-hearted about this or that. God is all in. He's a whole. Jesus is whole. And so you take the whole Jesus or you reject the whole Jesus. So part of celebrating why he came, part of celebrating the whole Jesus rather is to celebrate why he came. And more specifically for our purposes this year is to celebrate what he said about why he came. So that's our series. Over the next several weeks we'll look at the eight or so times where Jesus explicitly told us why he came. We'll go straight to the horse's mouth. What did Jesus say about why he came? Well, in Mark 1, he says he came to preach good news. And in Luke 5, he says he came to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. In Matthew 10, he says that he came not to bring peace, but a sword. And in Matthew 20, he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Well, I won't go through all these statements now. That's what's ahead of us in weeks to come. You get the gist of them right right away. These are purpose statements. These are Jesus' own mission statements. Now, on the one hand, this won't feel very Christmassy, At least some of these won't, because these purpose statements aren't just about his birth. But on the other hand, hopefully we'll see over these upcoming weeks that these purpose statements really dial us in to the essence of Christmas, the essence of his coming. Why did he come? What did he say about why he came? There's one more thing I want to talk about before we get into our passage this week, and it's that Jesus is utterly unique when he talks in this way that he came to do this or that. If you've been a Christian for a while and you're used to the Bible, you may not be shocked by it, but... When Jesus says, I have come to fill in the blank, the first thing that should strike us is that no one talks that way. No one can talk that way. His coming implies that there's some place he came from, which means this is no ordinary birth that we're talking about. There was something before the birth. He came, and he says elsewhere, I came from heaven, or I came from my Father. So that phrase, I have come, implies preexistence. He was on the other side of the womb. That's utterly unique. And when he says, I have come to, followed by a, a purpose statement, well, that implies purpose. And predetermined purpose. So so two P's to help you out: pre-existence and purpose. At best, we mere mortals can talk in terms of our own personal self-discovery about who we are and what we should do with our lives. So I might say, I've come to see that God has made me a preacher. Not a very good preacher. But I can't think of anything else to do, and so I'll do this, right? Somehow that's, for some of us, that's our self-discovery. Others might say, I can see now that everything in my life has led up to this point of me being president of the United States. Well, that's self-discovery. That's good. But Jesus speaks of his pre existence and his predetermined purposes when he says, I have come to. That's not only utterly unique, it is radical. It should be controversial. It's a fork in the road. Either you chalk up this guy to the likes of those who say they've come from an alien planet to destroy this one, or. You take him for his word. You take him for what he claims. And that he's glorious and utterly unique and worthy of our faith and our worship. Okay, all that just sets up our series over the next several weeks. Now on to our passage for this week. It's Matthew 5. Matthew 5, if you have a Bible. And here Jesus says in short that he came... Not to do away with the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Here's what he says in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Three headings will help us think through what's going on in these verses. And I'll give them to you up front. Number one, the Old Testament has not been dismissed by Jesus. Secondly, the Old Testament has been fulfilled by him. And thirdly, a new law has been established. So first, the Old Testament has not been dismissed. This is what Jesus means right off the bat when he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Law in prophets was one way of summarizing the whole Old Testament. Occasionally it was law, prophets, and psalms, but usually law in prophets was the way to describe what we call the whole Old Testament. And Jesus insists that he has not come to abolish the Old Testament. To abolish it? Yeah, he hasn't come to destroy it. He's not come to undo it, to dismantle it, or or simply dismiss it. He hasn't come dismissive of the revelation of God that has come before. Now, why would Jesus need to say that? Why would Jesus need to say he's not come to dismiss the Old Testament? Well, in part because of what Matthew has been laying out about Jesus in what has come before, Matthew 1 through 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. So if you want, just turn back in your Bibles to chapter 1 of Matthew, and you can glance down as I point out a few of these themes that we should be noting. And the point is, Jesus is supreme. He's supreme in his authority. This is not your average man. Something big is going on. So in chapter 1, we see there's a genealogy, and Jesus, we learn, has an important heritage which can be traced through King David and all the way back to Father Abraham. We also learn in chapter 1 that Jesus was born of a virgin, just as Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah. In chapter 2, we read of the star and the visit of the wise men, these men who are seeking, as they say, the newborn king of the Jews. Herod, who bore the title king of the Jews in those days, of course you know he had fierce and deadly opposition to the news of the Magi's search for a newborn king of the Jews. He had the children murdered and, of course, Jesus and his family escaped. In chapter 3, John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. Just as, again, as Isaiah predicted. It's in that same chapter that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. Which might have been unremarkable because a lot of people were baptized by John in those days. Except in Jesus' baptism The spirit like a dove descends upon him and a voice is heard from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. No ordinary baptism. It's all public. It's not public in chapter 4 though when Jesus escapes to the wilderness, fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and he's tempted by Satan. He's tempted repeatedly and in various ways. And unlike Jesus' forefathers who were tempted and at various points gave in, Jesus never gives in. It's later in chapter 4 that Jesus' earthly ministry is summarized by Matthew. And I'll read these verses for you, starting in verse 23. He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, etc. He healed them. Verse 25, And great crowds followed him from, well, all corners of the region. In this summary, the superlatives just stack up. Every kind of people from every place, all over, with every problem, they're coming to Jesus and they're finding help. So this Jesus is getting famous, he's unavoidable, and he's causing quite the stir. For better or worse, for those who are optimistic about him, this is all good. For those who are skeptical about him, this is quite concerning but it just keeps growing and building one after another. Then in chapter 5, Jesus goes up to a mountain and he begins teaching. And he describes those who are, what? Blessed. We call them the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, prophets of the Old Testament often described those who were blessed and those who were cursed. And they always began that with the same formula. It it was always prefaced with, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, blessed are you if you, and cursed are you if you. Well, Jesus doesn't follow that old prophetic formula. There is no thus says the Lord. He just speaks... Ex cathedra. Blessed are. Here's who's in, here's who's out. Here's what marks those who are in, here's what you need. As Matthew will put it a couple chapters later, it'd be fitting even earlier, but later on in chapter 7, he says the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching for he spoke as one with authority, unique authority, divine authority. No one talked like this before. No one had done the things that Jesus did. It was all very new. It was controversial. And so the question arises, where'd this guy come from? Who is this man? As we sang already this morning, And where does he stand with the prophets of old? Not least, Moses, the chiefest of the prophets. Who does this guy think he is? Has he come to throw it all out and start over? He said some controversial things, some redefining things. And Jesus' answer is, no, I am pro Old Testament I'm pro Bible I'm pro what has come before he hasn't come to destroy it he hasn't come to dismantle it he hasn't even come to dismiss it ignore it or build without it but he did come to fulfill it secondly the Old Testament he says has been fulfilled It has not been dismissed, but it's been fulfilled. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. This is why I came. This is part of my incarnation, my ministry. This is who I am. This is why I've come, to fulfill them. Now, what does that mean, to fulfill the Old Testament? Well, some have suggested that Jesus means that he came to confirm the Old Testament, to reestablish it. But the word fulfill never means that, especially in Matthew. Others have suggested that Jesus came to clarify the Old Testament law and what it really taught all along but had been obscured by false teaching over the years. Well, that may be what's needed, but the word fulfill doesn't mean to clarify. Not confirm, not clarify. The word fulfill, especially in Matthew, means to accomplish that which was anticipated. So two A words help us here. He came to accomplish that which was anticipated. And the law and the prophets both anticipated the coming of Christ. And here's where we need to think law and prophets in terms of a whole. Law and prophets equals the whole Old Testament. And parts. Law and prophets. They're distinguishable. The law, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Mosaic law, the commandments. The prophets, well, those guys later on who specialized in predicting aspects of messiah's coming and the age in which he would come so even though it can be said as it is in matthew 11 that all the prophets and the law prophesied you see that prophets and law prophesied we think prophets prophesied sure i get that that's why they're called prophets how did the law prophesy? Well, not in the same exact way as prophets, but it all pointed ahead. Law and prophets prophesied. And in Luke 24, when Jesus walked with those two men on the road to Emmaus, he he said that everything in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, it must be fulfilled. Everything written about me. It's about him. Not just Isaiah 53. Not just the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Not just the priesthood. All that, yes. But also all the laws. The law of Moses, written about him, must be fulfilled. It must accomplish that which has been anticipated. The whole Old Testament then was pointing to Christ. Of course, some parts more directly point to Christ, more obviously than others, more predictively than others, but all of it was pointing ahead to Christ. In the language of Colossians 2, what came before is shadow, and what comes in Christ is substance. Shadow, substance. And so there's continuity and discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. Continuity in that there's this relationship between shadows and the thing that casts the shadow, right? Shadow substance. They go together, but that's not the same thing. Shadows anticipate someone coming. They they say Someone's coming, they're about to turn the corner, you can see their shadow, and then when they turn the corner, there's the substance and the shadow no longer really matters. Now look down at verses 21 to 48 of Matthew 5, where I'd suggest that Jesus advances what the Old Testament taught. He not only affirms what the Old Testament taught, but he also advances what the Old Testament taught. In these verses, Jesus gives uh, six times, he gives the same formula. They're called the the antitheses. It goes like this. Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then he quotes a bit of the Old Testament or paraphrases from a, a bit of the Old Testament. Followed by him saying, But I say to you, and he adds something else. So look at verse 21. You've heard it said, Don't murder. That's the sixth commandment back in Exodus 20. But I say, Jesus says, Don't be angry. Don't insult your brother. Don't be at odds or hold a grudge with your brother. Now, there's nothing in the sixth commandment that implies all that. It says don't murder. Jesus is taking things up a notch, is he not? How about the next one, verse 27? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's the seventh command. But I say to you, don't look upon a woman with lust. That's adultery in the heart. Jesus is taking the externals of the law of Moses and he's he's taking them deeper, or you could say he's heightening them, however you want to describe it. It's getting internal, not just external. It's getting elevated. The next one, verse 31, it was also said, and now we're referring to Deuteronomy 24. That if you're going to divorce your wife, you got to do the certificate thing. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses allowed for divorce for any reason. You just had to do the proper paperwork. Not so with Jesus. Jesus comes and says, no divorce except for adultery. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 adds another qualification. I won't go into that. But for our terms here, Jesus changes the terms of allowable divorce. Moses allowed for divorce as long as you did the paperwork. I say no divorce unless your spouse cheats on you. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's not merely confirming the law or clarifying the law. He's elevating the law. He's building upon the law. He's not utterly dismissing what came before, but he is advancing what came before. Again, heightening or deepening, however you want to look at it, taking it to an inward level. Now, I don't have time to go through the rest of these six six antitheses. I've mentioned three of them. And uh, I'd suggest that the other three are doing the, the exact same thing, even though some of them might be paraphrasing from the Old Testament instead of directly quoting from the Old Testament. But the same thing is going on. Jesus affirms the Old Testament, but he advances it. He's not starting from scratch. He is... One in perfect alignment with all of God's revelation that came before, but neither is he rubber stamping what came before. As he puts it in verse 18, see that? For truly I say to you, and do you see that unique authority there? For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. Or as the King James puts it, not a jot or tittle. That is not the smallest letter in an alphabet and not the smallest mark of the pen that would distinguish between letters of an alphabet. None of that of the Old Testament. So neither the big parts, neither the whole nor the small, none of it will pass away, Jesus says, until all is accomplished. And it's not yet fully accomplished. It is being accomplished. Much has been accomplished, especially from from the vantage point that we stand in and this side of the cross and resurrection. Yes, much has already been accomplished, but much is still being accomplished and will be accomplished until one day heaven and earth pass away, the end of the age. And until then, there will be an ongoing relevance for the Old Testament, even in this era since Christ came. There will be an ongoing relevance for the Old Testament, especially as we understand it as fulfillment in Christ and accomplished by Christ. Christ stands upon the Old Testament, but he stands head and shoulders above it. That's what he was doing in verses 21 to 48. Advancing it, and that's what he's getting at in verse 20. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Scribes and Pharisees were famous for their scrupulous keeping of the old testament law of course they had their hypocrisies and their inconsistencies but they were undeniably committed rigid law keepers and keepers of the old law of course that's all they had they wouldn't know to call it old they called it the law and we need a greater righteousness than theirs if we'll enter the kingdom of heaven? Yes, but not by simply trying harder in playing according to their old rules, but by adopting a, dare we say, a new playbook, Christ's playbook, his rules, and by depending upon a better covenant than they had back then. Covenant, law, goes together. Content of laws may overlap, right? Murder's wrong in the old, murder's wrong in the new. But now, it's all funneled through and identified with Christ in an unprecedented, Copernican revolution kind of way. You see, while the Old Testament laws had their purpose in their time, again, they were divine laws, they couldn't get to the heart of things. They couldn't empower. They instructed, and instructed fiercely. But they couldn't make. They couldn't change but the grace that Jesus came to bring in the new covenant that he brings is one not only of forgiveness but transformation it gets to the heart of things which leads thirdly to this a new law has been established a new law and if you're a note taker you might want to add by a new lawgiver to new law a new lawgiver. That's Christ. He's not a law explainer. He's not a law reminder. He's not a law clarifier. He's not a law expert. He's a lawgiver. Matthew's been going to great lengths. I haven't shown it to you, but he was going to great lengths in Matthew 1 through 4 to show that Jesus is a new and greater Moses. Moses. There are all these Exodus motifs that he keeps using and sort of showing that Jesus is the new and better Moses. And Moses was that first lawgiver. He was that Old Testament preeminent prophet. But Jesus comes and he is the final and ultimate lawgiver. He is the one who brings a better covenant. And so that law, as Hebrews 10 says, was just a shadow of good things to come. And those good things are all encapsulated with Christ a new covenant. He's a new mediator, a new priest, a new lawgiver, and he has a new law. And Jesus is not just a law adder, in that he adds laws. That would be spectacular. I mean, you can move from he's an expert on the law and he gets it right. No one was talking like that in Jesus' day. Unparalleled. The gall. Two, when well, he gets it right and he says, here's what it is. And he adds to what has come before. He heightens. He deepens. He internalizes. He says it's all fulfilled in him. He is the embodiment of everything that came before. And this changes everything. It changes the language, even of old commands. As far as the ethic of the command, that remains, what do you call it now? Well, how about this? Galatians 6.2, there Paul says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens, that's nothing new. That was expected in Old Testament days. Yeah, but now it's all bundled up in Christ. It's under his name. It's under his banner. It's the law of Christ. First Corinthians 9, Paul goes to some great lengths there to speak of the, the law of old and the law of Christ. He's not under the law of old, he says, but he is under the law of Christ. Or how about when Jesus says in John 13 to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another. Wait, that's not new. Surely that can be found in the Old Testament, right? Yeah, it can. But here's how it's new, and this is what he says next. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The ethic of old, love one another, Now in Christ, intensified, renewed, enlarged, and pinned to his love. His death and resurrection as the mark of love and the new definition and motivation of love. Or you think of how Paul contrasts the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus as he does in 2 Corinthians 3. I'll just paraphrase it. You can read it later on your own. He goes to great lengths there to talk about what we had with the Mosaic law and that covenant. Well, it it was all intended to show us our need for a Savior. So Paul calls it a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. He, he points out that the law was written, where? On tablets of stone. Cold tablets of stone that don't have a heartbeat, that are outside of us. Now in Christ, though, the spirit within us, there's a, a law written on our hearts. God not only commands and commands in lofty terms, but now in Christ he also provides isn't that good news augustine prayed lord grant what you will sorry command what you will and grant what you command command whatever you will lofty as it is but grant what you command lord provide what we need This is the promise of the new covenant. Not just a savior, not just a lawgiver, but also a performance provider, if we could put it that way. Now, we've been in some thick and deep waters today. Uh, We're often thick around here, but, but this is some thick stuff theologians through the years have said that this issue, how the old and the new relate is one of the hardest issues in the whole Bible and this passage is the crux this is the passage you got to know what's going on here so you might be thinking okay, (laughs) what was that, 45 minutes or so on this topic how long, really, what's the point does it really change what's the street value, you might ask Where's the Christmas in all this? Well, it's there. It's there. The good news is that he came to fulfill the law. He came to expose cold, external, rigid law performance for what it is. Not saving, hopeless, and grievous wearying do you remember how jesus said come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest come all you who are tired and frustrated of trying and trying harder and trying this approach and trying these things to do to earn your way to god's favor and acceptance give up Just come to Christ. He will welcome you. He will give you rest. And on the other side, as Jesus goes on to say, there is what? There's a yoke. There is a burden. Oh, his burden is light, though. It's easy. Because, again, of that transformation of the heart. Because of new desires and abilities that he's put within us. What's the street value of all this? Christmas is about a changed people. And we're not perfectly changed. That's why we long for heaven. That's why we long for more. But we are a changed people by God's grace. As someone put it, we're not what we should be. We're not what we one day will be. But praise God, we're not what we used to be. That's grace, that's Jesus. Jesus came with unparalleled grace, and he came with unparalleled supremacy, right? He alone can say, I say to you, and go from there. You think of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was up there, and he gets a visit from Moses and Elijah What a spectacular scene. And Peter has one of those classic Peter moments and says, I know, how about I'll build tents for each three of you, each of the three of you, and we'll extend this little visit, this camping thing. This is great. That's when the voice from heaven says, This is my son. Listen to him. Christ speaks with supreme authority that's what christmas is about listen to him listen to his law and listen to his gospel listen to his welcome listen to his promise of help i think of that little poem that i think john bunyan wrote he said run john run the law commands but gives you neither feet nor hands Far better news the gospel brings. It bids you fly and gives you wings. What a savior. Isaac Watts taught us to sing. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Or as we sang earlier... The double cure. The gospel's the double cure, saved from wrath and making me pure. What a gospel it is. If you're not yet a Christian, I commend this Christ to you, and I commend to you not some sort of path of performance. You see, all the stuff we're talking about is in light. Of the forgiveness that comes with this free welcome that Jesus extends to you, weary sinner. You see, Matthew's story goes on from here and culminates with a death and resurrection, with a cross and with an empty tomb. And there's nothing else in Jesus' teaching that'll do us any good if we don't understand that. That's the interpretive key, that's the way in the cross and resurrection. Jesus told us, and Matthew records it, the cross is a ransom, a payment for many, a payment for our sin, a payment for all those who would ever believe and trust that this is their hope. Once you put your hope in that, well, there's a double cure waiting for you. And for you, non-Christian, who are frustrated and annoyed with you know, external religion, conformity, obeying the rules, and that being the sum total of a religion, well, Jesus joins with you in loathing that. He didn't come for that. He came to provide more than that. He came to provide transformation, and he came to provide the power by which that transformation takes place. What a glorious Savior we have. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed a complete and supreme Savior and Lord and lawgiver and provider. You are the whole package And at Christmas, like all year round, we celebrate all that you have come to do, all that you have said you are, all that you have revealed in your word, and all that you have promised, but also all that you have laid out for us to follow. And we want to follow you more. May we follow you more as we behold you better. As we prayed at the beginning of this message, so we pray again. That as we behold our Savior, may we be changed from one degree of glory to another. For our good and for your glory. Amen. Understand and respond.
1: Come behold the wondrous mystery In the dawning of the King He the theme of heaven's praises Robed in frail humanity In our longing, in a darkness Now the light of Thy life has Look on flesh to ransom. Oh,
3: ask you, have you come to behold the wondrous mystery of Christ's living and his teaching and his dying and his resurrection for our salvation? I pray that you would. I pray that this Christmas would be one that's different than all the ones that came before, if you're not yet a Christian. I pray you would behold. I pray you would see with the eyes of faith. I pray you would grab hold, as it were, of Christ your Savior and Lord. Uh, let us know how we can help. If you're not yet a Christian and you've got questions, we're here to serve you. Uh, we weren't Christians at one time. We've all gone through this, you could say, metamorphosis of, uh, of our souls and uh, of our perspective of things. And so we want to help you through that if uh, you're on the other side of things so far. You can email us, info at dscabq.com. Or for those of you in the room, you can come up after the service, and there'll be some of the pastors up front who are here to greet you and and spend some time with you. Let us know how we can help. Christians, these themes take us straight through Matthew all the way even to the Great Commission. Jesus, with all authority in heaven and on earth, tells us as his followers to go into all the world and make disciples disciples baptizing them and teaching them to obey whatever he commanded and lo he is with you always in that endeavor even to the end of the age so in this advent season where it's always good and important and, and timely for us to speak of Christ to those who don't yet know him well let's not let's not cop out in a age of covid difficult as it is to share christ or even invite someone to come along to church in these days let's not miss out because souls have not changed in their need for a savior just because covid's around in fact in some ways they need a savior all the more and they might be all the more ripe for the plucking if God would use us in uh, our simple invitation to the gospel or our simple invitation to come to a, a church service sometime in the month of December. I close with the words of the benediction of 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.